Most of us have known and heard those words in church, and rightly so. Uh, those are the last marching orders that Jesus ever gave to his troops. It was the command that he left for us as well. The emphasis in that statement is on making disciples. Now, I have long felt that the church, and I don't mean just this church, I mean the church in general, has often done a poor job of teaching how in the faith. So in other words, we tell everybody, a new Christian, you need to now have a quiet time with Jesus. But we don't teach them how to have a quiet time with Jesus. Or we tell them, you really need to be praying to Jesus. And then we don't really teach them ways that they can be praying. And by the way, if you've ever felt in that boat about anything within the church, you're in good company because the disciples said the same thing to Jesus. They said, excuse us, uh, teach us to pray. They're asking for the how, okay? Um, in context, we make disciples by teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded us. But how do we teach all that Jesus has commanded, commanded us in such a way so that we are making disciples. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. How do we make those disciples? What do we do? How do we develop Christ in someone else? Now, this message is born out of uh, a lot of my recent travels this summer. Some of you may know that uh, I have had three of my students from Michigan fall in love and all decide to get married within the last eight weeks. So I have one more trip back to Michigan to make. This one I happen to be officiating. I sure wish that they could have spread their marriages out a little bit more uh, or maybe put them all on the same weekend so I only had to go there once. So leaving again this weekend, I feel like I could be making the trip to Michigan blindfolded, but I do promise you that I won't do that this time. Now, while I was at this first wedding, I saw several of my former students, and uh, they really are former kids, because the youngest one is now 19 years old, and the rest of them are all spanning their 20s. I've been doing this for a while, folks. Uh, I listened to them as they were telling me the stories about their life, and they had wonderful and amazing things to hear about uh, where they were currently living, their college life, their military duty, their occupations, all kinds of different things like that. But the most exciting part to hear is listening to Christ being woven in and out of what they were telling me about their lives. And it got me thinking um, how thankful I was to see Christ being developed in my former kids. And it also got me thinking, what in the world did I do to help shape Christ in these kids? Okay, um, I'm going to be mentioning stories about them, about the kids that I saw at the wedding, but there's two caveats in this when I talk about people being developed in Christ. Number one, there are many, many factors in how a person develops in Jesus. Okay, so if you still have kids at home, if you're a parent, you still have kids in your house, everybody look at my face right now, okay? Parents, you are the number one um, shaper of your kids' faith more than anybody else. Uh, 
It comes back every single time in all of the different studies. They all come back to say the same thing. Parents are the ones that have the biggest influence in a kid's spiritual life. And I know there's all kinds of different factors in that. We have people who are divorced, people who are together, people who are separated, all kinds of different factors that go into how you do that. But it is a responsibility for parents to be doing their best to help shape and form Christ in their kids. Now I say that because there's a lot of factors. Parents, friends, family members, co-workers, youth pastors, and I recognize the fact that I am one small piece of that puzzle. So as I talk about my kids, don't want you thinking, oh, he thinks that he did all this. No, I didn't do all this. In fact, the greatest builder of their faith, Jesus, okay, had really nothing to do with me. But I was thinking through, how did that happen? The other caveat I will give you is I am not here to pat myself on the back and say, every kid that I have ever come in contact with over the years is all serving Jesus. They're all missionaries. They're amazing people. Because for every kid that I can name and every kid I talk about today, I can probably name two, three, or four kids that are probably either not walking with Jesus or their faith is really kind of weak. And honestly, that's kind of to be expected because Jesus told us that's going to happen. What do you say? Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many go down that road. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. And while it's depressing to think that out of all these hundreds of kids that I may have worked with over the years, there's going to be a bunch of them that take that wide road. By the same token, I sit there and go, you know what? I've done my best with them. Jesus has already told us that this is going to happen. Sad though it is, it also relieves me a little bit going, oh, okay, I see how and I see why because of what Jesus has already told us. So our goal today is to answer this question uh, about what are some of the ingredients of this great commission? How do we develop Christ in someone else? We're going to look at one passage of scripture. And usually this passage gets divided into two different parts. They break up the stories and they shouldn't do that because it's really all one story. As we look through this passage, I want to uh, note three ingredients as to how you build discipleship, how you build Christ, help form Christ in others. It's going to be time, respect, and love. And undoubtedly there are others, other ingredients that go into this, but these are the ones that came to mind when I saw my kids at that wedding. So if you have your Bible, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, it'll also be on the screen. By the way, two of the most loving sounds pastors ever hear. Kids crying in church, that's awesome. Pages being turned while you say, turn to that page, okay? That's an awesome noise. Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jesus went with him. Large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, and instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around against you, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and uh, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, come, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. So we're going to talk about the overall meaning of this passage. There's different ways when you dig into the Bible to be able to see and understand what it has to say. Some of it is flying at 10,000 feet, looking down over the whole thing. Other things are going to be digging in verse by verse and looking at everything. Because this is a story, we're staying more at the 10,000 foot level because it's a little easier to pull that meaning out because of the story nature of it. So you have two people who are approaching Jesus, both looking for miracles. Each person has full faith that Jesus can accomplish what they are desperate to receive. Now, this is actually in contrast to the passage right above it. Mark chapter 5, verse 17 says this. It'll be on the screen. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The reason they were begging for Jesus to get out is because he just healed a man who had all kinds of demons in him. And Jesus said, okay, demons, you can go into the pigs over here. The pigs went nuts. They go flowing over the, uh, over the edge of the cliff. All of the people are, number one, scared of the power that they just saw, and number two, probably a little cheesed off that their dinner just went over the hill. Okay, okay, I'm sorry, they're Jews, that wasn't dinner. But anyway, (laughs) Um, two people, excuse me, so these people, right before this in this passage, are begging for Jesus to leave, and these two people are desperate for Jesus to come and give a miracle. Two people are all, these two people are also as opposite as it gets. One is a man who has a name, Jairus, and the other is a woman whose name is never given. 
One is a religious leader. The other is a woman who has suffered great physical distress and abuse. One needed a miracle for a loved one and one needed a miracle for themselves. Jesus agrees to go with this first miracle seeker, Jairus. En route, the second miracle seeker, our nameless woman, comes and she makes a very risky move and touches Jesus' clothes in the middle of this crowd. She risks being recognized and rebuked, mistreated and being made a public spectacle and possibly missing out on her miracle because of all that. But that isn't what happens. Jesus realizes the power has gone out from him and he asks, who touched me? Now, this passage has two onlys in it in Scripture. This one, Jesus, this is the only place in all the Gospels that Jesus is ever having been recorded healing someone without direct action on Jesus' part. In other words, he didn't say, be healed. He didn't physically touch them. They came and touched him. Only place in all of the Gospels that's ever taken place. Now, when you think about this crowd... The disciples thought Jesus was crazy when he said, who touched me? Now, has anybody ever seen rugby, like a rugby match in person, on TV, any of that kind of stuff? You know what I'm talking about here, folks. Anybody ever played rugby? Of course, you got a couple of crazies in the room. What I want you to think of when you hear about Jesus and this crowd is a rugby match. All of those people who are just pressing in as tight as they can, trying to get that ball or whatever the heck they're doing with that thing. That's what I want you to think about, okay? Because that's what this scene is. Everybody is crushing in on Jesus and the disciples laugh and say, what do you mean who touched you? But Jesus starts looking for this woman in this group, all right? Jesus makes his interaction with this woman public, She's trying to quietly get up there. How she gets in through that crowd, I don't know. But she quietly gets in there and she says, man, I I don't know if I can even get all the way to him, but if I just touch his clothes, I'll be good. And she's trying to do this quietly and then be able to sneak away in the crowd. And Jesus says, no, no, you're not gonna get a miracle and and run off. We're gonna talk about this. But he didn't do it to demean her in any way. He wants to show his care and his love of her and her faith that brought this miracle to her. Now, at this point, you can imagine Jairus is probably getting a little bit antsy. Like, okay, great, yeah, the woman is healed, but excuse me, Rabbi, I was here first, and I have a really pressing need. My daughter is dying. We need to go, right? As Jairus was lamenting the situation and the timing, people from his house show up, and tell him, your daughter is dead. In fact, they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Because evidently, they are looking at it saying, that's the limit of what he can do. He's teaching. He's, yeah, a miracle worker, but we're talking about death. This is done. Jesus simply ignores them and says, just just trust me, Jairus. It's okay. When Jesus enters the house, People there are doing the typical wailing and crying. If you don't know, back in those days, they actually used to pay people to come over and cry for a loved one who died. And the more people you had crying for your loved one, the more money you had, the more prestige you had, all that kind of stuff. They got a nice little crowd outside the house, wailing and crying over the death of this daughter. 
Jesus walks right past those people while they're laughing at him because he said, she's just sleeping, don't worry about it. In this story, we learn a whole bunch of different things. We learn that Jesus has great compassion. He stopped to help people who were in desperate need. And he cared about those problems that, were, uh, that they were experiencing at that time. We learn that Jesus is the master over sickness. But not only is he the master over sickness, he's also the master over death. Jesus has the power to bring people from death back to life. And it's actually obviously pointing toward one future event. Can you say it with me? The resurrection, right? Of what's going to happen with Jesus. We also learned that uh, it does not matter if you are a respected male synagogue official or a ritually unclean abused woman. Jesus cares about you all the same and is going to act on your behalf. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you're one of those high society folks. He responds to everybody who comes to him in faith. We learn it is faith that Jesus responds to. Jairus was confident, if you just come and touch my daughter, she will be healed. The woman was confident, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Each of these people already had faith. Now, we never hear about it, but you've got to think that these two people, probably because of their encounters with Jesus, became disciples of his. They learned all that Jesus was teaching. Now, I want to dig back in and find a little, find some details in there that uh, sometimes we skip. First thing is, de developing disciples requires time. If I asked you to name some of the most precious resources that we have that God has blessed you with, you're probably going to hear things like maybe you might hear some people say gold, jewelry, money, so on and so forth, possessions, health, family, but somewhere in that mix, I guarantee you someone is going to say time is one of the most precious things that God has given to us. Because time is one of those resources you can't get back. If you spend money, you can make more money. If you get sick, normally you get well. If you spend time, you don't get it back. However, you can invest time. When you invest time in a relationship with someone, you are able to give a part of yourself away in a way that you never could otherwise. Uh, David E. Garland in his commentary on Mark puts it this way, a personal encounter is vital. For anything real, uh, really significant to happen, for faith to become real. So for our two miracle seekers, it was the encounter with Jesus. It was the time that he spent with them that made all of the difference. So if you want to uh, make disciples, you have to invest time. So let's look. Jesus invested time into both of our miracle seekers. Verse 21, and again in verse 24, Mark refers to a large crowd. And obviously there are many people that want to see Jesus. They might be there to try and get their own miracle. They might just have heard wonderful things. They want to see who this guy is. But all of them are there and they're crushing in to try and see Jesus. And out of this entire crowd, Jesus makes a choice to invest his time in Jairus and this woman. For Jairus, Jesus went with him 
And so whatever places Jesus had in mind to go when he stepped off the boat, he said, you know what? He's the priority. I'm going with him right now because he needs me. For the woman, Jesus is already hard pressed for time at that moment, but uh, there's a dying girl he's trying to get to, but he stops and he takes his time to speak into this woman's life about how her faith has been put on display and that is the basis of how she got healed. Jesus continued to Jairus' house even in spite of the report that his daughter is dead. He could have said, you know what? I'm sorry I spent so much time with that lady. Uh, I'm sorry your daughter is dead, but go in peace, brother. Everything's gonna be okay for you. No, Jesus continued his journey with Jairus to his house. But not only that, Jesus took his time at Jairus' house as well. He took the time to rebuke the mourners and throw them out. He was purposeful in bringing specific people with him into the room where the girl was. Uh, He was not there basically just to drop a miracle and run. He was there to give purposeful time and full attention to this family. Mentioned that there was a 19-year-old girl at the wedding. Um... She was a very young girl at one point when she wanted to go on her first mission trip with us. And I sat there and took time with her and her mom to talk over details, talk over some of the things that I knew she was going to face that would be different for her than maybe some of the rest of the group. Her older brother, after he went into the military, I had moved here. He and I remained in contact so that we could be talking about some of the things that he would be facing while he's in the military. The bride is a story unto herself. That's a whole sermon for another day. But she went from being non-Christian, not believing in Christ, to being a full-blown disciple that is so solid in her faith right now. And as I look back, it's not anything particular that I did. It was just simply investing time in those relationships. And because of that time, because of those personal experiences that come with the result of time, Christ was, in either big ways or small ways, being shaped and formed into these kids. So how much could we help those around us if we are becoming intentional about spending time to develop Christ in people? What about going to the high school, and intentionally sitting with someone that you know you want to influence for Christ. Find someone that you would like to invest in. Find out what their hobby is or your hobby is. If you share it, spend some time doing that to influence them and encourage them in Christ. Host a card game night, a book club. Do something so that you can be spending that time intentionally with that person. We as followers of Christ really need to revive the dying art of hospitality. Uh, Let me give you this quote. It'll be on the screen. Garwood P. P. Anderson says in the Lexham Theological Word, Word Book, in biblical use, hospitality serves multiple functions, including relief for the poor and dispossessed, strengthening of the bonds of infection, inclusion of the outsider, and especially in the New Testament, the propagation of the gospel message. Unfortunately, in this day and age, we think hospitality and we think food and fellowship, okay? We're staying after church and we're gonna have some hospitality and some fellowship. That's great, 
We said it's going to be bonds of affection that are built and strengthened, but we've got to widen our view of what hospitality can be, and we can be reaching out to those around us. When my father passed away almost 19 years ago, um, I had to travel from Michigan down to where I grew up in the southern suburbs of Chicago. While I did not conduct the funeral, I did stand up and speak at the funeral for my father. When I did, I saw in this back corner in the back row about four or five of the people from my church, the senior pastor and several of the other people in the church, who took the time to drive the four and a half hours down, go to the funeral, and then turn around and drive four and a half hours back. Never forgotten the time that they spent in doing that for me. In teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded, developing disciples requires time. But developing disciples also requires respect. Uh, you can't help develop Christ in someone if you do not respect and display that respect to them. Jesus met this man as he steps off the boat, and that sounds innocuous enough until you understand who this man was. He was the ruler of the synagogue. In other words, he was a religious leader of the day. When Jesus encountered religious leaders, normally it ended this way. Jesus rebukes them, the religious leader goes running off crying into the night, and they are embarrassed and fearful of what Jesus has just said. That's the normal thing that happens. When Jesus steps off the boat, he meets this religious leader and he says, I'm going with this guy. I respect this guy, I'm going to step in and I'm going to help where he is going. Not only did Jesus take the time to listen to his request, to follow with Jairus, Jesus went to fulfill the request. He took that extra time. Then there's the woman. And we've already talked about this large crowd, the time that Jesus took for this woman. But in the midst of the chaos, Jesus stops for, get this, a woman. Do you get it? In this day and age, that's not a big deal. In that day and age, that was a huge thing. Why would you even bother stopping for a woman? All right? Um, Jesus is basically turning the world upside down by the things that he is doing. He's turning religion back to what it is always supposed to have been. In that process, part of that turning the world upside down is also changing the status of women along the way realizing how much they are, uh, how much they are meant. Um, simply by taking that time to talk with this woman, he is showing her incredible respect in front of all those other people. You can imagine the people in the crowd were expecting this woman to get yelled at because the teacher is busy and he doesn't have time for your piddly little problems. And instead, Jesus shows her respect by letting her and the crowd see that she is a person of worth and of value and time and worthy of time for respect. I always respected my students in Michigan um, basically by expecting them to be what I anticipated that they will be. In other words, I expected them to behave like mature adults, even though sometimes they can be crazy little teenagers. Uh, we all know that's true. I expected the best from them. Uh, I gave them ways to lead in the youth ministry. 
when we would be preparing for a mission trip or for VBS, we would be handing them responsibilities, responsibilities like an adult would get. We'd say, here's your adult to help you if you need it, go get it done. And we would expect them to get those things done because we respected their place, we respected what they were capable of doing. It, respect carried all the way into adulthood. Um, sitting at the wedding, I wanted to make sure I saw the bride and groom before I left. The, uh, the dinner was over, the music was starting, which is always Keith's cue to run for the door because Keith don't dance. Um, <laughs> I did my normal thing of circling around to all the people that I know in the room to say goodbye to them. And of course, leaving the happy couple for last. I get up to the bride, she is not with her groom at the time, and I said, Savannah, I'm not leaving until I meet your husband, because I wanted to make sure that I was showing respect to her and showing respect to her new husband, whom they have just now gotten married. I'll save you the entire long process, but it took me 45 more minutes before I was able to leave because of all that took place before I could get up to the bride and the groom but I wasn't leaving until I saw them and until I met him. As we develop disciples, here's a few ideas for what you can do to be showing respect. Notice people. That takes a lot. Just notice people. And let me give you two examples of what I'm talking about. People in wheelchairs often get looked over, right over the top because number one, they're shorter. Number two, people don't want to deal with what they might be dealing with. So oftentimes people just look right past them. And in this, that sense, they wind up feeling maybe a sense of lack of respect. This one, do you notice the people that serve you in public? So the servers at a restaurant, your cashiers, the people that are there serving you, do you notice them? It's easy when you're in this town, you live in a small town, everybody flocks to the Mexican restaurant, everybody loves Polo and Deb, they all know these people, and it's easy to pay attention and notice them. How about when you go to a different restaurant and you don't know anybody? Are you still noticing them? Are you paying attention to who they are? Jesus noticed the, this woman in a society that would never give the time of day to a woman like that. We need to show people respect by simply noticing them. Seeing the, excuse me, the next one, seeing the value in others. Not only did Jesus notice the woman, but he saw her value. He saw her faith. He saw that she was a person made in God's image. He saw that the disciple, or the disciple that she was probably going to wind up becoming because of this encounter. He raised the value of that woman simply by noticing her in a society that basically ignored them. When someone you're discipling for Jesus is feeling undervalued by their family, remind them of all that they are worth to their Heavenly Father. When that person you're influencing for Christ feels as if no one cares about who they really are, remind them how valuable they are to Jesus and to His kingdom. Show them how valuable you are to them. Let them feel that they are worth, or excuse me, let them, let them feel the worth of Christ that he has for them that you want them to feel as well and allow that to come flowing through you. 
meet the needs of someone. As you're respecting them, meet the needs of someone, no matter how different they may be. Jesus was, or excuse me, Jairus was a type of person that Jesus usually would not uh, interact with. He would rebuke those people. And instead of allowing any differences between religion or interpretation of the law, how God interacts with man, Jesus still treated him with respect. So someone that you're trying to influence for Jesus has different views about abortion rights or human sexuality. Respect them. Allow the actions that you take to speak louder than your words. The person you were working with has a different parental style than you do, maybe. Respect them. Find ways to nudge them in Christ so that you're nudging them toward maybe a biblical view of parenting. When the person that you're seeking to influence has an abrasive personality, respect them as you're nudging them on toward Christ. Developing disciples requires time. It requires respect. And developing disciples requires love. People need to know that they are loved to be truly transformed. The woman was never truly transformed by the so-called doctors um, when she went to them to go get well. They took her money, they mistreated her, and obviously caused her to suffer all the more. She was, however, transferred by the love, or excuse me, transformed by the love of Jesus. When called out about touching Jesus' clothes, she came scared before Jesus, probably knowing that uh, in that society, what could take place. So she approached Jesus with a mixture of fear and faith. I'm healed and I know it, but what is he going to say to me? Is he going to take this miracle back? But I trust that he's good. Jesus calls her out not to make her suffer, but to love on her. Remember how I said there are two onlys in this passage? Okay, said that earlier. I'll Smile, nod at me. Okay. Following along? Still awake? Okay. The first one was that Jesus healed without direct uh, speaking or touching, so on and so forth. The second only in this passage is, this is the only woman in all of Scripture that is referred to as daughter by Jesus. That's huge. When this woman has been abused, rejected, set to the side of society, Jesus calls her daughter. Basically like a father to a daughter in an affectionate way. Jesus is telling her, also, go in peace. And that term peace is not just a sense of calm, hey, you've been healed, all is well. He's saying, go in a sense of uh, the whole person is now at peace. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, every which way you can be, you are now whole. All of this to say that the woman was shown much love by Jesus. And Jairus was also loved by Jesus each and every step of the way toward his miracle. Just after the woman is healed, Jairus' friends come to him and say that his daughter has died. In fact, what it actually says is, while Jesus was still speaking to this woman, these men come up and say, your daughter has died. And all Jesus says is, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just believe. I just healed this woman. 
you just saw that it took place. Trust me, I got your daughter covered. And Jesus is again displaying his compassion by reassuring the man what probably is a time of grief mixed with, mixed with faith. Jairus is probably thinking, my daughter is dead. That's a fact. And my heart is hurting right now. Jesus tells me to trust him. I believe him, but this is still death we're talking about here, folks. It's final. So his range of emotions had to be going crazy. But Jesus, he winds up getting rid of the crowd, and he takes only three disciples, uh, assumingly the messengers, and Jairus back to the house. And upon arrival, we already know, he kicks out the mourners, he takes uh, his parents by the hand, or the parents by the hand, and he continues to show love and compassion with every step. Every step reassures that something amazing is going to happen. Every step is meant to communicate, I care for you. Every step is a, a step of faith with a loving master that will show them why their faith is not misplaced. At the wedding, I talked with a maid of honor, and uh, she excitedly updates me on her life, filtering it through all the ways in which it was connecting to her faith. And in hearing all of that, some of the stories of loving this girl come back to mind. Going on a winter retreat, we are there Friday night. About 2.30 in the morning, I get a phone call from the uh, female chaperone in her, their cabin. And she says, this girl has just gotten sick, thrown up on everything. We need to take care of her. Can you come over and give me a hand? So I get, grab my brand new towel, take it over to their cabin and surrender it so that they can use that to help clean things up. Figuring I'll use a shirt or something to dry off with. Anyway, after we kind of get some of that taken care of, we then hop in the car to go drive halfway home so that we can meet her dad at four o'clock in the morning, drop her off, then I get back to camp around 6.30 in the morning. And that's, of course, when everything's starting up, right? All of that to say, it's a moment to love on this kid. But the fun part was, this is me taking care of her physical needs, fast forward, Fast forward multiple years, and uh, she's coming on a mission trip with us as a leader. One of the kids gets injured, and she immediately jumps in and starts taking care of this physical needs and loving on this kid. So she's learning those things in the process as well. Uh, I talked to her older brother at the wedding. Um, the school that, that we had there was a little, I don't know, it was unique. There was more... Well, in a bad way. There, there was more suicides there in the time that I was there than I've ever heard of or seen anywhere else. Um, after I had been done as pastor at the church, I got a phone call from the head counselor at the school, and she said, this student has committed suicide. Is there any way you can come in tomorrow to help? I said, absolutely, I'll be there. So I was helping in the hallways, directing kids where they needed to be, making sure they were safe, not running out of the school, things of that nature. In that process, Clay comes walking around the corner, and I'm able to just sit or stand and talk to him in the hallway for a while about how he was feeling, what was going on in his heart, and loving on him in the midst of these problems that were taking place with this young man who committed suicide. Talked to one other student at the wedding. Uh, when I left there, she was 14 years old, so I had her when she was like 12 to 14. Young girl, has a beautiful voice. 
And from the time she was young, I always told her, you need to use your gift for God's glory, period. And I said, if you ever lead worship somewhere, you tell me where it's at and I will be there to worship with you. Anybody want to take a guess what she's studying in college right now? To be a worship leader. Anybody want to guess what she's doing in her church right now? That I was able to attend at wedding number two with her? She is interning at her church as a worship leader. She's doing great. All because of just simply loving on her. And we develop disciples by loving on people. And some of you already know that this is true. Some of you have had your kids' friends over to the house for years and years, and now they feel like they're your kids as well. You love them just like you love your own kids. And I've heard from some of you guys in just talking with you that all those years of teaching Sunday school and now your kids are adults and they have their own kids and you're thrilled to death to see them coming to church, to see them doing well in their faith, all because of the love that you showed them while they, you were a Sunday school teacher. I've heard from some of you, for kids in the church, when we were putting together special times for prayer, saying, I would like that family because I know that family, I know that kid, that kid was in my Sunday school class, they're special to me. I love them. I want to be praying for them. You already know how this goes about loving on people to help build them in their faith. We love others by the heart that God gives to us to love them. There are some relationships that just click. God is giving us a heart for this person that we can influence them for Christ. We love others as a heart or by the heart, by what we invest in them. Uh, we're uh, we enter into a trusting, caring, loving friendship with them. Through the investment, we are able to disciple those friends. We love others by the heart that moves to action. When we love and care for a friend, it moves us to action. We rush in when other people rush out. We rush in when their kid is sick and they're at the hospital and they need to know that they are loved by you and loved by God. You rush in to listen, to cry, to hug, to display the love of Jesus because you love and care for that person and you are influencing them every step of the way. These are the ingredients to developing disciples. Time, respect, love. I'm sure I could probably name more, but like I told you, I'm preaching for an hour today, so I had to thin it up a little bit. I want to end with two questions or two other little things to, to deal with this topic. Question number one that I'm sure is in your mind right now. Is this all our responsibility, Keith? Because you and Trevor are the professionals, right? There's a number of ways that I could answer this question. I'm picked historically for this one. 1517, a man named Martin Luther, or Martin Luther named, or excuse me, nailed 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg Church in Germany. Most of us know what that is. It's the beginning of the Reformation, beginning of reforming the church. A lot of us know the slogans and the things that went into it. Uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. We know and understand that as to what he's done. One concept that came out of the Reformation that is still misunderstood by the church is the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Now, we've talked a little bit about that in the past. Um, 
basically what the priesthood of all the believers is and what most people understand it to be is we do not need anyone to approach God for us. We can approach him all on our own because we are a priest before God, what he has declared us to be. And to all of that, I say yes and amen. That is awesome. We can approach God in that way. Here's the other half that we have not understood because we don't have a priest in that position that we have to approach God in. We don't have a priest in that position who provides ministry to us. We are all priests. We are all workers in God's kingdom. We are all disciple makers. Amen? Okay? This is the history. This is part of the theology that we've missed out on because it doesn't get preached the way it should. And it should be a good reminder to us. But the final question for you guys, why are you telling us all of this stuff about discipleship, but these people that you picked in scripture are never even mentioned as disciples? And this is getting freaky that you're in my mind because you're anticipating all these questions. But thank you for asking. Making disciples involves evangelism. Okay? We have to go and recreate others in Christ. And that begins with people that don't know Jesus. Those people in these passages didn't know Jesus. They were looking for an encounter. They were looking for a miracle. They trusted enough to say, I believe he's good. I believe he can do this. I'm coming to him because I trust in him. And then when that trust was proven out in what Jesus did, you have to imagine that that's taken off. You have to imagine that they became deep, loving, respecting disciples of Christ because of what Christ has done for them. They started as those who probably didn't believe, especially Jairus. He was a synagogue leader. He was in that religious environment that Jesus came to change and to reform. But we trust that they have become full-blown disciples simply because of their encounter with Jesus. So there are so many more things that we could talk about as ingredients for discipleship. Time, respect, love, all going to give us a good foundation. And I have little doubt that while we've been sitting here, you have probably been thinking of people, and if you haven't, you need to start thinking of this, You've probably been thinking of people who have shown you time, respect, and love to get you to the place where you are in your discipleship, in your faith. There was a man named Clyde Lee in my home church, a little on the gruff side, a little toe-the-line toe rule kind of guy, so he can, would get on us from time to time, although I was a perfect child, so he never got on me. Um, <laughs> anyway, he... Uh, um, he was very proud. He would ask my mom regularly when I went off to college, because I was with him up until maybe junior high. Through high school, he'd be checking in on me in school or at church. When I went away to college, going to Bible college, he would ask my mom about me on a regular basis. And when I went into ministry, he would ask my mom about me on a regular basis. He was very proud of how I had turned out whether he ever thought through the influence that he had, I don't know. But I guarantee you there are people who influenced you, and I'm probably guessing you've been thinking about some of that. You may have been thinking about some of the people that you have influenced yourself. 
that you're already sitting there going, I've had influence in this kid's life. I've had influence in this person's life over here, this coworker that I have. Awesome. I'm glad that you are thinking through that. But here's the last thing I'll say. Please, please, please be looking at those in the future that you can be influencing for Christ through time, respect, love, and all the other ingredients that go into uh, achieving the Great Commission. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for, um, for your love for us. Thank you so much for our ability to join in with you um, for your mission, for what you are doing in the world, for how you are um, making disciples in the world, how you are reclaiming people from the world, you are bringing them into relationship with you, and Lord, how we are bringing them along to become full-fledged disciples in you. So Lord, I ask that you are going to help each one of us, number one, think historically about who influenced us, who we are influencing, who we have been influencing, and who we can influence in the future. Lord, bring those people to our minds and then give us good ways in which we can be um, utilizing to speak into their lives for you because our desire is to influence influence them to become disciples for you. We ask it in Jesus' name.